the Activist Season 2. Welcome back, everyone, to the Deactivist podcast. My name is Randall, and today we are with Andrew Cooper, and he's going to tell us exactly how he feels about the current state of affairs. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm great. Well, Randall, I'm feeling great today. I'm having a chat to you, but uh, overall, I'm, uh, I think it'd be fair to say I'm a bit pissed off. But uh, right, what's uh, what's pissing you off the most these days? Uh, you know what? Uh, I've gone through a uh, Kind of like a bit of a wheel. I've started off being pissed off at the politicians, uh, and then at the, uh, the the enforcement of the police in terms of the COVID response. Uh, but you know what? Part of me is starting to get pissed off at the Australian people. I think it's. Uh, I think uh, I'm feeling a little disappointed in um, in my fellow Aussie at the moment. Yeah, that's so interesting. You say that. I um, when I think of the Aussie spirit. Um, I think of people like Steve Irwin or, you know, even Kathy Freeman, you know, these, these people who risk a lot to do something. And um, I'm not feeling that at all these days. I don't know. Where do you see the Aussie spirit? Do you think it's dead? Uh, I think the Aussie spirit has crawled under the bed and clutching the pearls along with most of the nation, I'd say. Uh, yeah, it's hard to see. You know, those cultural myths we used to hold about ourselves, those pioneering Aussies, you know, those risk takers that you spoke about. It's hard to see us returning to those cultural myths, in my opinion, uh, after this. Uh, I hope I hope we do recover. Uh, and I don't mean just from the health emergency crisis, whatever you want to call it, but I hope we recover, you know, our, um, I guess, our sense of, uh, of uh, spirit, and uh, uniqueness, I guess. Yeah. Uh, whatever made us Aussies to start with, those larrikins overseas that everyone used to talk about, it's hard. I just got off a call from um, with the Amer- some American friends. Uh, uh, did a um, did a show there with them, and, and they wanted to interview me about. Uh, they, they're getting a lot of press over there now about the Australian response to uh, to COVID, and they can't believe it. They've been to America, right? They can't believe. That you know what they're seeing on TV is the Australia that they remember. So it's uh, it's interesting. It's a very interesting time. Yeah, the thing that I didn't realize is that over in America they don't have QR code check-ins. No, no, they essentially don't have masks either. I mean, yeah. the concept of sort of uh, mandating masks, except for in a couple of pretty um, authoritarian states, is is totally foreign to them uh, because because basically the science is so unsure, so dubious around mask wearing, particularly outside. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so just uh, we did jump the gun a little bit. Why don't you tell people who don't know, who are you? What do you do? Who is this bloke coming on my show? <laughs> uh, it's no surprise that people don't know who I am. But anyway, uh, Andrew Cooper is my name, as you did introduce me as. Uh, I have a, uh, a, um, a libertarian-leaning think tank uh, called Liberty Works, uh, which is a uh, when I say I do, there's a few other people involved in that, uh, but essentially we're a small outfit that um, tries to find uh, issues that we can either campaign on or uh, perhaps take legal action on, uh, issues that we think if we win on will move uh, freedom forward a little bit in the country. But I also run the uh, CPAC conference, you might see the sign in the background, the CPAC conference in Australia each year. Uh, which we've which we've just had to move from Sydney, of course, and uh, looks like it'll be in Brisbane this year. 
So um, yeah, that's that that that's me, mate. Yeah, and I, I do have to start this interview with an apology because last year um, I was tying up my documentary on libertarianism in Australia, and I thought I've, I've got to get Andrew Cooper on to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. So we did a massive interview, went for about an hour, and at the last minute I pulled it from the movie because I'm like, you know what? This coronavirus, it's going to blow over and we're going to be fine. And I want I want this movie to be evergreen and people won't know what we're talking about and how wrong I was. So I apologize, first of all, to you and second of all, to all the viewers who are like, you know, I, I ended up just putting one sentence in saying that this was filmed before the pandemic. But man, how wrong I was. I couldn't foresee that we would actually be two years down the track and yeah. still living like this. Yeah, yeah, it is crazy. Yeah, uh, you don't have to apologise to me. It was a, it's a ripping, um, it's a ripping uh, doco slash uh, movie. And um, congratulations to you on producing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, Article thirteen point two of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights states mm -hmm. that everyone has the right to leave their country, including his own, and return. Um, mm -hmm. But that's not the case right now. Uh, so, first of all, but before you tell us what um, you guys are doing over at Liberty Works. What is the logic behind this move that Australians aren't allowed to leave the country? Yeah, so um, the Australian government, the federal government, has um, implemented um, or uh, used uh, sections of the Biosecurity Act to uh, put a ban on uh, Australians uh, leaving the country. Australians uh, under the Constitution have a right to return to the country. Uh, controversially, they sort of suspended that for two weeks with the Indian ban. Mm -hmm. I doubt whether that would have been upheld constitutionally, but of course that's a long process uh, to challenge that. Uh, so, so the Biosecurity Act has allowed, uh, or Greg Hunt has, uh, uh, has used the Biosecurity Act to, to ban every Australian from leaving. Some Australians can get back overseas, but there's a convoluted and incredibly opaque uh, process, uh, application process uh, that's handled by Border Force. And... Um, and uh, we, we, we ended up challenging this. We decided this was a very um, uh, illiberal thing to do, um, that, uh, you know, one of the, one of the great, um, you know, uh, kind of issues with, uh, with freedom is uh, one of the you know, positive issues or rights we have is that the ability to sort of like leave our country. If we don't like the way it's going, if we don't like the way, uh, you know, things are happening in our own country, surely we can pack bags and leave. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, and, and strangely enough, uh, you know, it's a very, when, when, when you're subject to these bans, you must think everyone's got these bans, right? There's only one other country in the world of, that I'm aware of that has this ban, and that's North Korea. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just incredible. Um, and I'm pretty sure at the moment more people are escaping from North Korea than are out of Australia. So, it's, <laughs> so you're doing a good job. <laughs> you're probably right. I was reading an article from, I think, 2015, where uh, the international community was were criticizing China for their exit travel bans because they would, you know, if you were politically left, oh, sorry, politically right, or you know, said things that weren't really in line with the CPP, they just wouldn't let you leave the country. And now, well, I guess uh, we've essentially got the same thing, maybe for different reasons. But yeah. as he said, it's a very dangerous time to be living in Australia. I think. Well, if you don't like it, you can't leave. So you better. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, one of the great, you know, the nationalists or the, you know, the, the, you know, 
one of the great retorts to anyone who complains about the state of the nation is, well, if you don't like it, why don't you leave? <laughs> I, I, I can't, you know. It's, it's, uh, anyway, um, look, you know, it's a challenging time, I think, uh, but um, as we've seen around the world, and, and I don't think we're choosing between great, great answers to these challenges or great solutions to these challenges. It's all about the, the, the least worse and... Um, and I guess everything we say has got to be in that context. But um, I certainly feel, I certainly feel, and I don't know what you think, Randall, but I really feel that the value of freedom, like, you know, I think, I think the value of freedom in the minds of Aussies at the moment has been diminished. It's like, it's like you know, we, we've been prepared to, throughout our history to fight for freedom. We send troops off all over the world to fight for these liberties, these freedoms. And now we send troops into our own streets to take those freedoms away. It's like it's um, it's a very it's just a very strange time in my in my opinion. Yeah, it's the image I had the other night when I was trying to contemplate why people are so so eager to give their freedoms away was I think it's like the fog of war, and they just they don't understand where say the safe haven is. So they're kind of in this storm and there's waves all around them, and they're basically just trying to save the hospitals at all cost, And it's like, actually, no, there's a safe haven over here, which is personal responsibility and freedom. You should always cling to this, but they just, they're just so terrified. They can't, they literally don't know what's going on. So yeah, I, 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 for two years, I haven't been able to convince anyone. Well, I don't think that freedom is an important, you know, cornerstone of our, of our civilization. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm drawing, I'm drawing blanks. How have you found it being, I mean, you're quite vocal on Facebook. Um, how has people, even within your circle, reacted to some of the things that you say about the pandemic and how we've responded? Uh, am I vocal? I'm not sure. Um, I, thought it was just, <laughs> I thought it was just sensible. <laughs> um, uh, look, um, I think you sort of shed the people that don't like, you know, that have strong views the other way. I think that's just the nature of social media. Um, you know, I find myself, um, uh, I find myself frustrated in myself that I can't shut up <laughs> uh, because I'm just so, I just so sort of done with this whole narrative that the only way uh, forward is to lock people in their cages, in their homes. And I've got no doubt that you can uh, extend life uh uh, by removing most risks, by confining people to cages, right? I've got no doubt that that can happen. The point is, is that the life we want to lead? Is that is that the is that the fullest and most valuable lives that we could all lead? And so, now you know, on the other side, of course, that you, you can hear people sort of thinking, yeah, but you know, we can't have people dying. Well, the thing is, um, people die all the time because they take risks, right? Uh, I don't get the flu vaccination. I take a risk. Uh, on most years, a thousand or more people uh, die in Australia from uh, influenza. Um, but we didn't lock the country down to save those people because they were stupid risk takers. It's just like we've just we've just sort of got this. Um, we've kind of spiraled into this kind of uh, navel gazing situation where where any life now that's lost to COVID is just uh, one too many. And I was thinking about this this morning, talking to my American friends. Why is this the case? And it. And it occurs to me, Randall, that, you know, we're, we're like a, a small nation on the arse end of the world. Uh, the only other kind of natively English-speaking country near us is New Zealand doing exactly the same thing that we're doing. 
And uh, we're not allowed to leave the country, right? So no one's traveling and coming back with stories about how, how, it's not, uh, how it's not the Black Plague in Europe or people aren't lying dead in the streets in Washington, D.C. So that information is not returning by word of mouth. The information we're getting from the mainstream media and a lot of media is that uh, it's carnage out there. Now, I understand, like, they've got to sell newspapers, they've got to get clickbait, they've got to, you know, earn a living, and you don't do that by reassuring people that the rest of the world isn't all dying en masse. Uh, so, you know, they've got a job to do, they're doing it, their shareholders are happy. But we've got this spiral of information that's just reinforcing itself. Um, the political class, of course, see this, uh, see that people are fearful, uh, decide that the best way to win an election is to reinforce that fear and place themselves as the safe hands in which to get us through the pandemic. So I just think we have this um, circular kind of uh, process of fear upon fear building on it on itself. It, it's going to all come crashing down. I mean, you know, I don't know when this is going to happen, but uh, I would say the coalition is in, in massive trouble um, federally. Uh, and, uh, you know, Campbell Newman leaving for the Liberal Democrats, Ross Cameron leaving for the Liberal Democrats, John Ruddick, many others all leaving to the classical Liberal Party or the Libertarian Party because they're just done with the narrative of the coalition, I think is um, just like the tip of the iceberg. And I think, you know, and I got plenty, I'm sure you do too, I got plenty of friends in the, uh, in the Liberal Party uh, that um, are quietly appalled at the direction that, and the narrative that they're, they're, they're pitching into the electorate with. I don't know what the answer is for them. And, um, you know, I'd say that they're just gonna be in a lot of trouble when the election rolls around next year. Are you involved with the Lib Dems in an official capacity this year or? No, I, I resigned as president of the Liberal Democrats, uh, not because I was unhappy, just because I had too many things going on. And, and my activities with CPAC and uh, Liberty Works, they're, they're non-profit organisations. And strictly speaking, you're not supposed to be overtly political. Um, you know, I was involved in Lib Dems because I wanted to help with some of the structuring of the organisation and give them a kick a kick along uh, because I think they've got a valuable thing to say within the political landscape in Australia. Uh, but uh, it's in safe hands now. And, uh, you know, with Campbell Newman joining that party, um, it'll be good. It'll be good to have another voice there that's not parroting what everyone else is parroting. So I'm looking forward to seeing Campbell on the uh, campaign trail. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how the Liberal Party reacts to that. Uh, because I can assure you that Campbell Newman saying a lot of things that people in the Liberal Party once said. Yeah, okay. So we, we talked earlier about, well, you touched on the fact that you've been disappointed first with the government and politicians and then with police enforcement and now with basically the Australian people. Do you think the Australian people will be ready to hear the Liberal Democrat message uh, of, you know, no lockdowns or, you know, uh, sensible lockdown approach. Do you think they're ready for that? Do you think they'll they'll actually respond to that message? Um, when you say the people, I don't think there are. I think it's so polarised at the moment. I think there is a constituency there that is gagging for that message. That constituency is smallish. I would say maybe a quarter of the population, uh, but I suspect that'll grow. Uh, and if Campbell can, uh, and others, so shouldn't, we shouldn't just be talking about Campbell, but if he and others can uh, craft a narrative that's um, not around opening up and watching people die, but opening up and making choices, individuals making choices about how they're going to deal with the, with the uh, pandemic in their own terms, 
Um, if they can craft some sort of message around that, I think I think there's definitely a spot or a place there for that narrative, and I think that'll attract votes. At the moment, everyone's just pitching into the majority. Um, no one's representing that uh, that sort of uh, smaller constituency, and it deserves representation because it's got something really valuable to say. Yeah, for sure. Um, going back to the travel ban, though, so you guys were fighting this in court. Um, yep. How did that go, um, first of all? So we took, uh, we took the federal government, the Commonwealth, to the, uh, the federal court um, in front of the full bench, which was important, uh, to challenge the uh, validity of the travel ban. We didn't challenge uh, their argument that we're in a health pandemic, um, given that very few people die in Australia of, of it, that there is a prospect of challenging on that basis. There's lots of ways we challenge. We're pretty well just challenged simply by saying that the uh, Biosecurity Act doesn't give Greg Hunt the power uh, to implement control orders on everyone. And the reason we say that is essentially, um, I mean, there's different arguments put forward by our uh, eminent legal team, but the, essentially it comes down to the Biosecurity Act allows the government to place control orders on individuals. It's very explicit. It uses the word individuals. Uh, our argument was that uh, because of the use of that word and at the time of contemplation or the drafting of this act, it was never contemplated that the government could place biosecurity orders on every individual, essentially everyone. Um, under the act, it seemed very clear that you needed to name the individual. And so we challenged on that basis. Uh, and now, you know, there's always a risk going to court, but um, our barristers are pretty, uh, pretty convinced that we're onto something here. And, uh, but the, uh, they did warn me uh, before we went, uh, went in that they said that it's federal court judges in particular are very reluctant to, um, uh, to find against the government. So there was a risk there. And uh, unfortunately for us and the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Aussies that need to get overseas or want to get overseas for various reasons, unfortunately for all of us, we, uh, we failed in that. And it's, it, quite frankly, Randall, it's bloody disappointing, to be honest, um, you know, I just think it's just a ridiculous, uh, uh, ridiculous piece of legislation and a misuse of the Biosecurity Act. And uh, what, what's the next step then if, it, if it's failed now? Do, do you take it to the High Court or what's the... Yeah, so we, we had a window to appeal, to seek special leave to the High Court to appeal. Uh, that window is now closed. Essentially, that closed because we, we didn't have enough money. Um, you know, it's, a, it's kind of like a 600000 to a $1 million dollar um, uh, piece of work and it, it takes kind of 18 months right so by the time even if we won mm. by the time we win this is probably done anyway so it'll be one of those kind of victories that um well, i don't know that's what i said when i was making my documentary so <laughs> <laughs> oh god i hope i'm wrong Randall. Yeah, honestly, i don't want to be sitting here another year and a half going hey mate we should have mentioned the high court <laughs> you should have done that you know yeah no it's uh so look it's disappointing um uh, you know, there are, we are looking at other ways of which um, there are other ways that uh, this may be challenged, but at the end of the day, a lot of this comes down to money and uh, finding the right funders and um, it's expensive. It really is expensive. Yeah. yeah. Now, mo most Australians are not allowed to leave, you know, there's no excuse to leave um, yeah. except for some. So mm. Mm. Uh, Anastasia Palajak, uh, the Premier yep. of uh, Queensland, despite having 130,000 signatures petitioning her to stay, 
she scurried off to Tokyo without without a problem, uh, you know, to get our bid for the Olympics, which she got. Um, I'm not sure many people really wanted it, but, you know, we've got the Olympics. Uh, but then she did this weird thing where uh, she got uh, the Australian Olympic Committee, John Coates, uh, the head of the Australian Olympic Committee, um, to mansplain to her in Tokyo why she has to attend the opening ceremony. Now, it's a big deal because she said, oh, I'm just going to stay in the hotel and I just want to do the bid and this is strictly business and I don't want to, you know, I'm not there to have fun, trust me. But then Coates admitted that she asked him, hey, can you grill me on camera so that I can attend the opening ceremony? So, I mean, how does that make you feel? I, I'm pretty, you're a Queenslander, right? So you're in Queensland, you're not allowed to leave, you're in the high court trying to get other Australians have the freedom to leave, and then this happens. How did that make you feel? Look, uh, yeah, there's two issues here, right? Should she be able to leave and attend the Olympics? You know what? Yeah, sure, she should. Um, That's uh, her calling now. Yeah, 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 shut up, she's saying. Um, <laughs> or maybe she's saying, good point. But we should all be able to leave, right? That So first and foremost, we should all be able to leave. Um, and if we return, like she did, we then should be subject to the quarantine conditions under, uh, under the laws of the land, which are reinforced by the terms of the Constitution. Um, uh, the fact that she has uh, been at the forefront of trying to prevent Australians coming back to this country and is, uh, was instrumental in uh, halving the, uh, the quota of Australians that could come back to this country every week, and yet then she leaves and becomes one of those people that needs to return to the country, then that hypocrisy is, is the thing that I think really um, sort of, you know, sticks with me. Um, you know, I just, I just hope that people remember this sort of stuff. This is just so, um, this is just so sort of, um, I don't know, just innately dishonest and, um, you know, you know, setting coats up and, uh and then, and then, and then, just watching him sort of uh, strangle himself on live TV was just uh, was just ridiculous. And I, you know, I just, I mean, it's just all so ridiculous, Randall. Don't you think? It's just like, um, um, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm almost speechless about it. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm rambling because I just can't get my head around the whole bloody thing. It's it's such a ridiculous thing to have happened. It's political theatre at its finest to have the audacity to organise that. Is just insane. Couldn't she just be honest and say, look, now that I'm here, I'm actually, I may as well go to the opening ceremony. I don't believe any of this crap anyway. I'm just, you know, doing what I have to do. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just think I, I'm torn between whether um, politicians are acting, uh, acting, well, yeah, like I actually I'm not torn at all. I really think the veil has just been listed, uh, lifted from these politicians and you can kind of see them for what they are, which is, you know, absolutely immoral, irrehensible people. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, look, she, she hasn't like, uh, basically in my, my, in my opinion, a lot of politicians do have um, some, uh, I guess, some backbone, some core values. You may or may not agree with some of the things they want to, they, they believe in and maybe, you know, they get twisted you know, and the political system kind of mashes them up and twists them a little bit. But but someone like Palaszczuk, um, she doesn't really have, she doesn't stand for anything. She's the puppet 
um, that's being controlled by the puppet masters uh, and the polling that they do every week that we now know that they do. And decision-making is based purely on that. Um, she stands for nothing uh, except uh, electoral success. And unfortunately, in Queensland, uh, the, um, you know, the opposition has been very weak. Yeah. Mm. So what are the steps, do you think, to get us out of this mess? You know, what, what have you guys been... been... So the, the steps, what should have been done, or the steps from here... Um, I, I think both. Let, let's let's explore what should have been done in in your view, and I mean, and then practically speaking, how do we how do we turn things around and get back to normal? Yeah. So uh, so what should have been done? Look, I I can see any government being in a state of panic at the beginning. Um, you know, if we accept that we need a government, you know, I'm not fully accepting that, by the way, Randall. But if we do, <laughs> if we do, uh, then I can understand that a government. Uh, can be in a state of panic and when the when all the other governments are rushing towards lockdown at that time you know uh, it's really hard to um, kind of uh, run against the herd right uh, there are some exceptions uh, our famous uh, 10 million population uh, Swedish uh, Swedish friends did run a, run the other way or did move the other way or stand still probably is the best way to uh, to describe what they did they've uh, never had a lockdown um, uh, they were essentially laughed at, uh, if not accused of being murderers uh, through the uh, course of this pandemic. But if we look at, uh, and we're not epidemiologists, are we, right? So, uh, but we can read spreadsheets, we can look at data, we can go to source data and see what's happening. So if we go to the Swedish source data, we can see that um, they're currently dropped down to 39th on the death per million table there's they're plummeting down that while lots of lockdown countries are constantly in and out of lockdown more deaths more people dying uh the death rates rising so we won't know for another 12 months or not whether the swedish approach was in hindsight a good approach a middling approach a bad approach but i personally think that what the swedes did is the way to go uh what they said to their population was that uh the pandemic is dangerous um uh, you need to consider what you need to do to protect yourself. Our recommendation is wear masks, um, you know, don't go out, uh, you know, online shopping. They, they told the people what to do. Some people followed that, some didn't. Now, unfortunately for them, of course, it, the virus got into the uh, old people's homes as it did in Victoria and it swept through there and, 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 and look, killed a lot of old people. And, you know, we can't be, no one can be happy about that. But for the most of the population, they looked after themselves um, some risk takers, you know, who wanted to enjoy life, uh, you know, sky the equivalent of uh, skydivers in our in our in modern day society. You know, those risk takers. You know, some of them probably died. I'm not certain of the specifics of the individuals, uh, but right now they've essentially got herd immunity. They're at 60% vaccination. Uh, the messaging to me was right, particularly after the first few months from the Swedish government. And you compare that to uh, lots of lockdown countries like the UK, Italy, France, um, Israel, 85% vaccinated, going into another lockdown. Uh, Gibraltar, 100% vaccinated. Uh, cases are still going through the community. I mean, there's no, there's no perfect solution to this. It's what is the least worse. And I think uh, for me, if you price freedom and liberty at all, and the Swedish had it right. Um, people, they left it up to people to make their own decisions about what freedom and liberty was worth to them. 
if that meant that they took risks that ultimately led to them getting sick, well, it's no one's fault except that individual's um, that that individual person's uh, fault and control over their own lives. So, to me, that that's that's much more that's much more the direction we should have taken. Yeah, and, and a quote I heard recently was, "Principles don't scale." So, no matter how bad things get, principles are principles because they're principles. You know, they don't change. Yeah based on your external environment. So if your principle is personal liberty, I mean, you don't scale that down because there's, you know, a virus or, you know, even, even when bombs were dropping, you know, during World War II, they didn't lock people in their homes because it was too dangerous to go out in the streets. No, there was mums pushing prams and all sorts of things while literally bombs were dropping in the streets. You know, yeah. it's just, it's ridiculous that most of the world has just shut up shop. But I think you're onto something. I, I, I do believe that governments just don't want to stick their neck out and, and do something counter to the rest of the world because if it goes wrong, then ugh, that's, that, that reflects really badly on them, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so where do we go from here, do you think? Uh, I, think uh, I think all our political leaders have got themselves almost stuck uh, I'd say I'd say they're all going to be in a world of pain in six months' time because to get out of here, they've got to repudiate uh, pretty well all their messaging from the previous 18 months. And, um, you know, I don't think there's any hope in hell of getting to 80% vaccination, despite what some of the polling's now showing. Um, if you look at overseas countries where there's been a real threat of the virus, threat of lockdowns, they still can't get to 80%. So I don't think that's the case. Israel's a little bit different, you know, much more. Um, well, I mean, I, Israel to me culturally is a different is a different sort of country, and it's they a culturally have, cohesive unit, really. Yeah, yeah, they're they're used to kind of outside, you know, um, having their feet to the blowtorch, so to speak, and sort of <laughs> rallying behind uh, a solution. Um, so I, I think I think if we get, and even if you get to eighty percent. There's still going to be the virus through the uh, community, and right now we're, we're we're pursuing zero cases of the virus, and as we've seen with Gibraltar, even though it's 100% vaccinated, it's only 50,000 people, right? But it's 100 100% vaccinated. Um, there's still plenty of people walking around with the virus there, and so this zero case thing, that's not the you know that'll have to be repudiated. Um, they'll have to uh, rethink. Um, uh, what to do with, um, I mean, they're, they're talking about vaccine passports. I think that's a really dangerous uh, sort of policy policy item to put on the agenda. Now, bear in mind, Randall, I'm vaccinated, right? I'm not, I'm not anti-vax, okay, but I'm pro-choice. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, I don't think uh, we should be forcing anyone to uh, get a jab. Uh, I believe if a business that wants to request or uh, only employ people that are vaccinated I also think that that's their right what I don't think should happen is there shouldn't be government mandates around these things I think um, and I'm probably pretty sure you probably agree guys let's take a real quick break I just want to tell you that I do this for the love of liberty I do this for the free flow of information man and life is just a vibration and the alienation of our thoughts and you know, I'll stop right now. If you buy me a coffee, head over to patreon.com. Look me up. The link is in the description below. We have all different merch things and the different tier levels. But, you know, if you just want to support the show with a one-off payment, that's cool too. And you don't have to. Just give us a like, give us a share. But the link is in the description. And I'm going to shut up now. Well, this version of me is going to shut up. The other version where I'm interviewing people really poorly is going to continue. 
Enjoy the rest of the show. I don't know why they don't have mass antibody testing. Because if our rollout's so bad, I mean, let's say 50% of the people have antibodies, then you've just cut your rollout in half, essentially. Yeah, so, you can't buy antibody tests in Australia, and yet in Europe you can go into a pharmacy and get one. Yeah, right. You, so you, you can get them, um, but you have to go to a lab and it costs about $80 to do it. You can. Where, yeah, whereas, you know, if you just get the normal PCR test, that costs the taxpayer. They, they love those tests, but not yeah. antibody tests, which is yeah. like, I, I don't, I really don't understand that. Um, but no, I think you're right. I think this kind of, uh idea that vaccines you know you should have a vaccine passport and it really gets shoved down your throat i mean the, the latest thing is that uh, hse students from southwest sydney have to get the jab before they sit the exam and that's just to me that's crazy because they're only 17 18 years old yeah um yeah that doesn't make sense to me at all but um lack of a consistent message and sometimes the blatant lying to the people i think it just does not help their case i mean what did you think of that uh video sorry that ad campaign that they did with a young woman on the respirator and she was struggling to 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 breathe and it just says in bold letters COVID affects everyone get get vaccinated and stay home when they didn't even have vaccinations available for most people like that really bothered me what did you think of that well i mean spending taxpayers money on trying to scare taxpayers is um (laughs) is uh, a little bit uh, ridiculous Um, but you're right about the blatant lying I mean Janet Young the chief health officer up here in Queensland uh, has been very disparaging of the AstraZeneca virus uh, AstraZeneca uh, vaccine and um, uh, you know has basically been saying telling young people not to get it uh, not to take it and look I don't think they should be saying they should take it or not. I think, you know, information should be provided and people, adults make their own choices. And, um, but it transpires that her husband's, you know, on the board of Pfizer. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, in, in the private sector, this just wouldn't be allowed. Uh, she'd be removed uh, mm. from, um, from any company that had that sort of conflict of interest involved. And yet, you know, she's the chief health officer and, uh, and, and, and governor, uh, you know, designate for the uh, state here. It's, um, you know, there's just a lot of uh, misinformation flying around on both sides of this argument. And, um, you know, I guess uh, for me, um, you know, for me, the, the big problem we have with uh, lockdowns and, um, and governments implementing solutions that help all of us is that it doesn't, it doesn't separate those that are vulnerable, you know, which is essentially people over 60 or 70, uh, and those particular, you know, the older up the scale you get, they're vulnerable people, right? So you can argue that, okay, maybe there's got to be some special programs around them. But anyone under about 50, the chances of dying is like, um, you know, it's less than dying in a car crash. I mean, it's just, um, it's, uh, it's just ridiculous. And yet the lockdown throws everyone into the same bucket. You know, the, everyone uh, is treated uh, the same way. They're, the, everyone's freedoms are taken away. Everyone's liberties are removed. And, um, and it doesn't need to be that, that way. It doesn't, you know, it shouldn't be that way. The people that are less, you know, we should each be given the opportunity to make the assessment ourselves and we should choose which way we should live our lives, what sort of risks we should take on, whether going to work is more important for us than, uh, you know, sheltering at home. Now, if I'm elderly, if I've got diabetes or something like that, you know, I'll be a little bit more cautious, I'd imagine, than if I'm a 20-year-old 
that needs to get onto the job site to pay the rent. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything that you've seen over the past year or 18 months that has actually given you hope for the future or is it all doom and gloom? Uh, no, it's not doom and gloom. Well, um, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, look, look, we live in a great country, right? So, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic place to live. But globally, the thing that I'm really loving at the moment is the, is the rise of uh, cryptocurrencies, of decentralised finance, of uh, Bitcoin, if you like, for those that are unfamiliar with those terms, uh, you know this. This reminds me so much of the uh, of the introduction of the internet back in the uh, in the nineties, and I was involved in that. You know, we started an internet company in ninety eight and um, and grew that to a fairly sizable business by early two thousands. And it just reminds me so much that uh, you know there's a there's a wave of change coming that's going to uh, you know break down a lot of the uh, you know, traditional kind of structures that get in the way of uh, millions, if not billions of people around the globe uh, not being able to get a bank account uh, with countries like Venezuela and El Salvador and a lot of countries where the where government uh, uh, kind of government ineptitude uh, can be bypassed by using cryptocurrencies instead of deflating, uh, you know, dollars. So, you know, I'm really excited about what's going on in that particular space. I think I think in five years time, we'll look back at this time and just go, wow, what a what a what a what a fantastic period that was particularly if you know governments around the globe keep printing money the way they do you know this is a uh, financial experiment that's never been tried before in the history of the globe where every, basically every country on the, on the planet it's just got the printers going brrr, you know it's <laughs> you know who knows what's going to happen right <laughs> every bit of that website i think it's called money print money printer goes brrr. yeah and, and it just shows the amount that the us is printing every second and it's well, just it's Australia too. Like we're, yeah. you know, we're uh, yeah, Gale Reserve Bank is essentially printing money. It's not quite that simple, but um, and so you know, where does that money go? Well, it's going into assets at the moment. You can't bloody spend it. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in a few years' time. Interesting. So what what uh what crypto do you recommend that we all get behind? Do we oh, just get God. behind old-fashioned Bitcoin? Uh, yeah, I'm loathe to make recommendations, uh, but I would just encourage people to Google decentralized finance um, and just explore. Like I literally have a bank account. It's in US dollars, but uh, it's it's paying a 20% interest rate or 19.5% interest rate. So if they go to Anchor Protocol, anchor.finance, uh, uh, you know, you can create a bank account there, put some US dollars into a kind of a US dollar stable coin and earn a 19.5% interest rate. Now, you know, take that to your bank and ask if they can match it. <laughs> it's like, it's just, you know, so, you know, that's been around for, you know, you know a while now. I'm, I'm very big into that. Um, and I think um, what, what I love so much is not the ability to make a quick buck. What I love about uh, crypto is the ability to kind of democratize, what's the word? Democratize. <laughs> Democratize, that's the word I was looking for. Democratize, you know, kind of financial services across the globe, particularly to those uh, people that um, either for regulatory reasons or other reasons just can't get hold of banking, can't save, can't send money. Um, so 95% of the, uh, of the foreign currency transfers into El Salvador are in US dollars. Uh, the average commission on those or the average costs with those US dollar um, transfers are, is 10%. El Salvador has just made Bitcoin a national currency. Okay. Wow. So that's going to slash the cost of expats sending money back to their families 
Uh, it's going to slash that big chunk of uh, fees and costs out of those transactions. That's going to do so much good for El Salvadorian families that are struggling, that are on, you know, that are poor. Uh, you know, it's just a great thing for the world when these things happen. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited by it. Yeah, you know that they're onto something when in the early days of Bitcoin, the US government tried to ban it because they're like, oh, people are buying illegal things with it. It's like, um, they don't buy illegal things with US dollars. What are you, what are you uh, talking about? You're probably too young, Randall. I'm giving you, throwing you a bone there, mate. But, you, but back in the early days of the internet, it was really bad because people watched porn on the internet, right? And, oh, and back wow. then, Back then, porn was illegal in Australia. The only, the only way you could get porn was to go to Canberra, right? You buy <laughs> videotapes in Canberra, right? It just seems absurd for those uh, th those are younger, right? But the internet just, you know, it was, it was it grew because of the demand for porn, you know, black market uh, entertainment, I guess you'd call it. Uh, but then all the good that came out of that, uh, you know, obviously with what we've done with uh, uh, being connected, the network effects of being connected globally is just so fantastic. You'd never go back. And I really think that this crypto space is going to be very similar to that. My first uh, experience with the internet was playing Duke Nukem online with someone. <laughs> and that was that was mind blowing for my young brain. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, that's bringing back that's that's a floodgate of memories just opening up to me right now. <laughs> so it it's you know uh, I'm wondering where you. And this could be a long answer or, or a real quick, simple one. But I'm wondering where you kind of started your journey towards liberty and libertarianism and personal responsibility. Is this something that you grew up in a paradigm of that kind of philosophy? Or where did this all start for you? Uh, look, it's a bit of a cheesy answer, but I read Atlas Shrugged. Uh, when I was about 18 or 19. In fact, uh, one of my mates I used to argue with pretty well threw that book at me and said, Look, oh, really? yeah, yeah, you just sound like Ayn Rand. Um, I didn't know who Ayn Rand was and read it and just went, oh, my God, that's, that, that you know, the penny dropped for me. Um, look, uh, you know, my, my parents were, uh, I guess, Joby Occy Peterson National Party supporters back in the day. Well, you know, I was brought up in central Queensland. Uh, and you just, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you don't, necessarily agree with everything that happened but you could see he was a real small government guy and uh you know he had <laughs> he had pros and cons but what he what what i really loved about him is he was a small government bloke right he was a small government didn't want government uh, getting in the way of business and those sort of early lessons kind of stuck with me and then i then i read ayn rand then i ran read milton friedman's free to choose and a whole bunch of other books and uh and then i realized that this is this is a philosophy that if the whole world adopted, the world would be such a much better, it'd be a much better place. And um, uh, so, you know, when you believe that, it's hard not to talk about that at your barbecues and your dinner parties. <laughs> and you annoy the crap out of your friends. And, you know, and then I sort of sold my businesses and whatnot and uh, sat on my ass for a year or two and wondered what I should do with my life. And, um, and thought, you know what? Um, why don't I start a small think tank? And it just sort of grew from there. Um, so that, that that's me. I mean, other people have got much more uh, sophisticated answers to that very piercing question. Uh, I'll be curious to understand you. Like, how did you? You know, well, I, I could tell you when I first came across Atlas Shrugged wasn't was quite late in my libertarian thinking. I read Atlas Shrugged at the start of twenty twenty 
which was the worst time to read it in all of history because there are literally chapters and chapters in Atlas Shrugged of the government bureaucracy sitting down and talking about the use of emergency powers. Yeah. And I'm reading this in 2020 thinking this is really depressing. It's the perfect, it's the perfect time to find Atlas Shrugged, really. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I think so. I, um, I was... Uh, I think I grew up in a pretty conservative family. Um, so they're always listening to 2GB and things like that, but I wasn't politically engaged. I just thought, yeah. I, I just hated politics. I just thought they're always lying. I knew the media was always lying. So I made a documentary 10 years ago or something about fake news before fake news was even a term. Nice. Um, so I made that one because, you know, it, it's quite easy to decipher whether someone's telling you the truth or not. There's like, you know, five things you can do and you can debunk basically anything. Um, unless they're telling the truth, then you're like, oh, that's true. Um, and then I came across uh, Ron Paul and I became like a vehemently anti-war libertarian because yeah. I think it was one speech he did when he was running for president where they were basically talking about WMDs. And he said, well, there's like 7,000 Russian warheads then we don't even know where they are yeah so why are we going to war over one that yeah. doesn't exist when there are seven thousand we know exist and we're just cool with that and I, I thought that makes sense so i followed him for a while and through ron paul's books at the back of his book where you know he was like recommended reading and so ludwig von mises was on there rothbard was on there so it all came from watching ron paul videos on youtube so yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a thing. Once the penny drops on the libertarian philosophy, you can't go back, in my opinion. You just you, you can't go back. Pe people go to it, but I, I've rarely seen anyone go back the other way. Uh, yeah. once, once the penny drops and once you find that intellectual consistency that's based on the philosophy, then you can apply that to pretty well all aspects of your life. Uh, and it gives you that kind of um, base in which to lead a life. That uh, you know, if everyone else, everyone led that life, it'd be it'd be such a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And what I really loved is how how it blends with economics so well. Yeah, um, you know, like just just the the sheer principle that value is subjective will change your business life forever. You know, yeah. like you could work really really hard on a piece of art that no one likes, or you can you know try and serve your audience. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, you know. Um, but it's been really great talking to you. What um. What's next? Uh, what's the second half of 2021 looking for you guys? What are you guys going to be concentrating on? Well, we've got uh, the CPAC conference, uh, which we've had to move from Sydney now up to Brisbane. Uh, that'll be on the 12th and 13th of November in, uh, in Brisneyland. And uh, so I'm hoping that borders will be open enough so that our interstate visitors can come here. Uh, last year, we had a small conference in New South Wales with every border closed. <laughs> so that was, uh, <laughs> I had to quarantine for two weeks just to come back from New South Wales. Oh, God, it was ridiculous. Mm. Um, so that, and we are looking at, you know, different legal avenues, uh, particularly with this uh, border ban. Uh, border ban. But, um, you know, it's too early to tell whether we will be able to uh, find something there that, uh, that is worthwhile pursuing. Um, it really sticks in my craw to use an old adage, it's, um, you know, I really think uh, of all the illiberal things we've done, banning people from leaving the country to attend funerals, to, uh, to, to marry people in other countries, to never come back, to ban people to leave, from leaving and never coming back is just absurd. Um, so I'm, I'm, that, that's a little passion of mine. Um, 
and I guess we just keep arguing the good fight, right, Randall? Don't you yeah, think? Try to, try to, try to do, try not to go insane in the process. It's hard. It's a hard slog, I tell you. <laughs> who, um, who, who do you have speaking at CPAC? Can you give us any names yet? Or uh, yeah, no, we're not releasing that at the moment. But um, uh, probably most of the, you know, who, who are some of the names that are making noise at the moment? They'll be speaking at CPAC. Okay. Yeah. Very nice. I like. Now, we'd love to get out. We got some US people, US congressmen and whatnot that would love to come over. But I just can't. They can't come over. We've asked them to quarantine for two weeks, so uh, mm. it won't be this year. Maybe next year. Yeah, righty. I'll, 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 I put my bid in for Christy Nome. I'd love to see her speak. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's just yeah. put put that in your ear. She'd be good. She'd be really good. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for being here, and uh, and uh, I hope that uh, twenty twenty one gets better for both of us. Yeah. Good on you, Randall, and thanks for doing the work you do too. It's appreciated. Mm.